A couple of things before we get into Acts chapter 5 tonight. Next week we'll have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper uh, in our evening service. And then the week after that, we'll begin a new series on spiritual intimacy. How do I develop and maintain an intimate relationship with God? It goes beyond just the moments when I'm singing, but engulfs and envelops my life where I sense His presence in a moment-by-moment and day-by-day basis. And so we'll start that for the summer on Sunday nights, and we'll pick back up in Acts 6, uh, beginning in September. You're probably wondering why I titled this message the way I did. When we last saw our dynamic disciples, they were... Well, I was studying this passage, and I realized from last week that I wasn't going to get all the way through it. And as I was studying it, I had this profoundly spiritual thought. Remember the old Batman series? It was on two times a week. I mean, it was worse than Joe Millionaire or The Bachelorette. I mean, you had to be there because it was zow, pop, crash, boom, and then all of a sudden, will the Cape Crusader, you know, make it through this moment? And then... They came back on Thursday night and said, when we last saw our Cape Crusaders, so when we last saw the disciples, they were doing some things. But we had to leave them in the middle of it. First thing, they had just experienced the death of Ananias and Sapphira. They had had a traumatic moment in the life of the church, a moment that taught them about sin. Secondly, they were performing great signs and wonders. And people were being saved. The fact that thousands were being added in a day was a sign to the unbelieving Jews that Christ had come, that Messiah had come, that something was different. The religious establishment was jealous and had thrown them in jail and an angel came and delivered them. Now if you read Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 5 is the first of three prison releases in the book of Acts. And when the angel delivers them from jail, it's the first of six angelic appearances in the book of Acts. And so this being the first, it's significant that we see what all happened. So I want to pick up at verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gate of the prison, and taking them out, he said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officer who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened up, There wasn't anybody inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came in and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Wonder where they are. They're right back where you had them the first time. Now there's a emphasis on the truth here because... What is emphasized is not the miracle of the deliverance from the jail. What is emphasized is the sharing of the gospel. 
When you read verse 19, it's all about them getting out and sharing the truth. Their focus was not on the angelic deliverance, the miracle of that. Their focus was on the Master. They didn't spend time explaining how the angel came down and what he looked like and how he got the door open without the guards knowing it. They just matter-of-factly recorded and said, you know, we were there, the angel came, we got out. They did not describe the prison food or the conditions in which they were imprisoned. They did not explain what an angel looks like or even what an angel's voice sounds like. They went out and followed orders. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of His life. Now every word in that command is crucial. Go, stand, speak all the words of His life. He was giving the Jews another opportunity to hear the message. And where did they go? They went to the temple. He commanded them to go and speak. To speak to the people about what? Well, about who's the best closer in the National League. Where's the best place to go get ribs? Who do you think is going to win the World Series? What do you think the weather is going to be like tomorrow? No. They didn't do small talk. They went and got right to the point. They spoke the words of life. Now I want you to hold your place in Acts chapter 5 and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we will not look at all of them, but I want you to see how Luke has picked up in the, in the book of Acts on what Jesus did recorded in the Gospel of John because he talks about this life. So what were they speaking about? What were they talking about? Well, they were talking about the life of Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in Christ was life. Chapter 3 and verse 36. Remember, they're now standing in front of the Jews in the temple and they're proclaiming the words of this life. John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Turn over a page to chapter 4 and verse 14. Chapter 4 and verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up, literally an artesian well that never runs out, to eternal life. Chapter 5 and verse 24. Chapter 5 and verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Turn a page to chapter 6 and verse 35, a verse that you're familiar with. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, but he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 63 of chapter 6. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Turn a few pages to chapter 11 and verse 25. 
Chapter 11 and verse 25, this is the account of Lazarus. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Chapter 14 and verse 6, very familiar words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then in chapter 20 and verse 30, chapter 20 and verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The emphasis was on truth, and the truth was about the life of Christ. They didn't come to argue doctrine or positions or theology. They came to present life, the life of Christ, the life that makes a difference, the defining life of all humanity, the God-man, God with us, the life, the person of Jesus Christ. Second thing, their obedience was immediate. They went at the time of the morning sacrifice. Now, we, we've just had an emphasis and earlier in the service on our faith teams and us going out and sharing. And You know, some people think that that's what preachers are hired to do. Preachers are hired to do all the work. Listen, you hire people to do things you don't want to do. We're called to be witnesses. It's not a matter of hirelings. It's a matter that all of us are called, wherever we go and whatever we do, to be witnesses. It's not optional for us. When I was uh, in Texas at the 1st of May, and uh, Tracy Goode flew with me, and I, I'm grateful for the pilot who flew me over, but he's 67 years old, and so, you know, faith without works is dead, and so I figured I better take a younger pilot who could fly alongside. So I, I took Tracy with me, and... Uh, we flew over and we we're staying in the hotel and we were getting ready for the last night and we're walking out on Thursday night to get in, in the car and Tracy just kind of looks over at me, matter of fact, said, well, my air conditioner was broken all afternoon. I said, really? He said, yeah, my air conditioner was broken. He said, call the guy up to fix it. And he said, while he's fixing it, I said, well, you know, I ought to share the gospel with him. And so in a hotel room in Las Colinas, Texas, a 40-year-old man who was sent there to work on an air conditioner, knelt down and prayed to receive Christ because Tracy shared the gospel with him. That's what we're supposed to do. Find ways to tell people good news. Find ways to say to somebody, in fact, he said to Tracy, he said, you know, I've never prayed in anything but Spanish. And Tracy said, that's okay, God will hear you. You know, so God heard him. But he came under conviction in a hotel room when he was there to bring the heat down God turned the heat up on him. And he came under conviction and came to a relationship with Jesus Christ. They obeyed and the two houses of the Sanhedrin came together and said, we've got to bring these guys in. We gotta, we've got to talk to them again. And so they went to get them and they were gone. In verse 26, then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. Now I want you to notice what he says. For they were afraid of the people that they... That means the Sanhedrin might be stoned. I find this almost amusing. They weren't afraid to kill the one who claimed to be the Son of God. 
but they were afraid of the people. And sometimes we're like that. We're more afraid of what people think about us than we are about what God thinks about us. And that's the problem that, that they had. They were afraid of public opinion. The tables had turned, and now they were on the defensive, and they didn't know what to do. Somebody comes in and says, I found them. They're out there doing what you told them not to do. And so they sent some guards out. They wanted to bring them in. But at the same time, they're afraid that because these disciples have gone back to doing what they were commanded to do, that now the Sanhedrin's going to get in trouble. Maybe they're going to get stoned. Maybe they're going to get in trouble. And then there's Peter's response, which is unwavering in verse 28. They said, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. <laughs> I love the way God writes his book. Now, choir, I don't know if anybody else will do this, but you write Matthew 27, 24 by verse 28. Matthew 27 and verse 24 by Acts chapter 5 and verse 28. Acts 5, 28 says, You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Matthew 27, 24 says, Let his blood be on us and our children. They just got what they asked for. Now, do you find that interesting? They're standing there when they've got Messiah ready to crucify him, and they say, hey, we don't care. Put his blood on us and on our children. And then when the tails are turned and when the Spirit comes, all of a sudden the gospel is being spread. And they go, wait a minute. You're trying to put his blood on us. That's what you asked for. Better be careful what you asked for. And God did exactly what they told God to do. Now they're suffering the consequences of it. And Peter makes a famous statement. Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. That word must is a word of necessity. It's not a word of option. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, folks, we are not saved because we obey. We obey because we are saved. Obedience is the result of salvation. It's not for salvation, but we obey because we have been saved. Now, I want to give you five words about their obedience, and they all begin with the letter I. This has got to be a preacher, so it's all begin with the same letter. First of all, their obedience was intelligent. They knew what they were supposed to do. There was no doubt. They were to fulfill the Great Commission, to do what God had called them to do. Secondly, it was intentional. They had a sense of purpose. They didn't stand around saying, well, now that we're here, what do you think we ought to do? You think we ought to lay down in the middle of the road and have a protest or get run over by a cart? You know, what do you think we ought to do? It was intentional. Thirdly, it was immediate. They didn't take a poll. They didn't procrastinate. They didn't go and say, boy, you know, that, that, that time in the prison, that was tough. I think I'm just going, I may need to take a vacation. And then I'll go back and do what God says. It, they were inflexible. They wouldn't bow down to man's authority because they were under a higher authority. And it was impassioned. We are witnesses of these things. It was an impassioned witness. A number of years ago, Adrian Rogers told the story of a Romanian pastor during the Cold War. 
They were trying to get him to register his ministry and his church with the state so that he could function and minister as a state-sanctioned church under the communist rule in Romania. And when they threatened him with what they could do to him, this is what he said. And I want you to listen to this Romanian pastor who has been called in, said, if you don't register your church, if you don't obey the laws of the state, if you don't do what we say, we're going to take your life. This is what he said to them. Yes, you can take my life. Your greatest weapon is killing, but my greatest weapon is dying. I preach the gospel. People know me. If you kill me, you're going to baptize everything I've said in my blood and people will know that I believe in what I preach enough to die for it and there will be more believers. Then he paused and said, If you use your weapon, I'll be forced to use mine. If you do what you want to do, I'll be forced to do what I've got to do. You see, what that Romanian pastor was saying was, I'm going to have an intelligent decision, an impassioned decision, an intentional decision, and I'm, I'm inflexible. I'm standing for what I believe. You can kill me if you want to, but I want you to know the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church grows because the church has a message worth living for and a message worth dying for. To obey, that word is not the normal word for obedience. In fact, this word where he says we must obey God is a word that means to be obedient to a ruling power or to a superior authority. What Peter is saying is you've got authority, but we answer to a higher power. We answer to a greater authority. And they were conscious of his rule in their lives. Remember what Paul's favorite term for himself was? wasn't Ph.D. Paul's favorite term for himself was bond slave, servant of God. Once surrendered and submitted to a master. And isn't that different from the spirit and the attitude of the church at Corinth? You remember Corinth. Corinth was, uh, somebody said Corinth was the sorriest bunch of believers to ever stir the waters of baptism. Paul said, You're carnal. That's what is his summation statement about a church that had all the gifts and everything that you could imagine. They, I mean, they had it going. But Paul's statement about them when he said, well, I want to tell you right off the bat what you are. You're carnal. Now let me define carnal for you. A carnal Christian is anyone who believes he has a right to live life on his own terms. That's carnality. A carnal Christian is anyone who believes he has a right to live life on his own terms. The scripture says you're not your own, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. You see, the Corinthians didn't want accountability. They rejected authority. They despised Paul's correction of them. And I want to give you two statements about Corinth that are important. They kind of summarize the whole book and what Paul had to deal with in the first letter to them. First of all, there is no authority like the authority of ignorance. Now you're going to have to think about that one for a while. The most dangerous people are the people who have the authority of ignorance. They don't want to know any different. They don't want to learn anything. They've got their mind made up. 
They've got their system in place. They've got God in their little box. And they have the authority of ignorance, not the authority of submission to God. The second statement is this. The further away you get from the center, the louder you become. The further away you get from the center, the louder you become. People in extremes of everything in life and even in Christianity, when you get out in extremes, you become loud about it and you become arrogant about it. But the closer you are to the center, the more you realize you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. And there's something more important than you, something greater than you, something bigger than you, and that is the glory of God. The carnal Christian is a person who says that they have a right to live life on their own terms. God's Word doesn't give us that option. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, do whatever you want to do. It's not what it says. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, I can't glorify God if I've got a different agenda from Him. Vance Havner says, you have only one option in life, and that's to choose or refuse Jesus. Once you exercise that option, that's the end of your options. I have a choice to choose or refuse Jesus, but once I make that option, when I say that I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, I lose my options. Because if he's the boss and I'm the bond slave, then I better do what my boss tells me to do. You say, well, he's a loving Heavenly Father. Yes, he is. But he's Lord 431 times in the New Testament. He's only called Savior 23 times in the New Testament. He's Lord. That's his name. That's the name that every knee is going to bow to, is the name, the Lord. We're going to bow before his name as Lord and King and Master. And so there's a rule that is recognized when they say they're going to obey. Now, once I'm conscious of that rule, I've got a clear purpose. Look at their purpose. We are witnesses of these things. Have you noticed how many things we're witnesses of? There are Southern Baptist churches that will fight you about being Southern Baptist and won't walk across the street to win anybody to Jesus. I I served a church one time and I tried to use Sunday school material that was very good, biblically based, but it didn't get printed in Nashville, which is the only place, by the way, you can print Sunday school material. And we had a called business meeting over it and an hour and a half discussion about it, and people demanding to see copies of it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm young, I'm in my 20s, but I'm thinking, you know what? If this is what kingdom business is about, we don't know what we're doing. This is crazy. People will get to where there'll be witnesses of a denomination, there'll be witnesses of a truth, there'll be witnesses of a style, there'll be witnesses of a preacher, there'll be witnesses of a sign, but they won't be witnesses of the very thing we're to be witnesses of, and that is Jesus. If we witness of anything more than we witness of Jesus, we dilute who Jesus is. Jesus plus anything is nothing Jesus stands alone and unique to do everything that we need done. 
We are witnesses of these things, of what? The truth. And there's not a lot of truth today. I hear a lot of stories, but I don't hear a lot of truth. We were having our pastor's conference here a few weeks ago. I had a guy talk to me for quite a while, and he says, he, he asked me this statement. He said, he said, Michael, he said, I hear a lot about the young generation of preachers being great communicators. But are they preachers? Are they expositors? Do they know how to teach people the truth of the Word of God? Or are they just telling a lot of stories? And you know what? A lot of preaching today is one scripture verse filled with 40 illustrations. And nobody knows any more about the Word when they get through, but they know a lot of good stories. But that's not preaching. That's communicating. That's a storyteller. But that's not preaching. Preaching is a communication of truth. And people may not want to hear truth, all the more reason to give it to them. All the more reason to say this is the truth of the Word of God because people don't want to hear it because without truth, people go astray. Everything we do and everything we teach has to be built and absorbed and based on the truths of the Word of God. I remember Ron Dunn talking to me about a time in the 70s when he and Manley Beasley and Jack Taylor and Miss Bertha Smith and others were doing Bible conferences, and boy, those were some incredible, incredible days. I would, I'd give anything if I could go back and sit in on just one of those conferences just one more time. I mean, the Spirit of God was so thick you could cut it with a knife. And that's when Southern Baptists were finally starting to wake up that it may be okay to mention the Holy Spirit publicly. You know, because for a while, Baptists, we didn't mention the Holy Spirit because that meant we were out there on a limb somewhere. And so we denied the third person of the Trinity, trying to be theologically correct. We were, but we were dry as dirt. And so the, Holy, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit came, and Ron was in the middle of that, and he was doing a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit. And Ron said, I was sitting in a conference one night, and he said that the whole conference was about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit he said, while I was sitting there on the front row, the Spirit of God talked to me and said, I want you to preach on the cross tonight. And Ron said, my first response to the Lord in my head was, now Lord, the cross? Everybody's heard about the cross. That's old stuff. And then I want you to listen to what he said. He said, a lot of the new teachings and strange doctrines are the result of men trying to maintain their guru status and keep their following. They have to be cute. The gospel isn't cute. It's covered in blood. And there's a lot of preaching that's going on out there that's got to come up with some new phrase or some new idea or some new little line that becomes the catchphrase for the Christians of the moment. And it's trying to maintain our guru status. In other words, truth that is old is not valid to reach people, so we've got to be cute about it. We've got to come up with a cliche. We've got to come up with a, a new term, a new phrase that everybody begins to start using. And have you ever noticed when we come up with those, we, we get further and further away from the Scripture? 
and we start talking in our phrases, in our Christian terminology, in our little catchwords, and we get away from the cross and the blood and Christ, and we start getting into other things. I tell you, there's a lot more interest in the Christian community in America today about legs being lengthened and pocketbooks being filled than there is about the blood of Jesus. We wouldn't have an empty seat in this room tonight if I was proclaiming the ability to lengthen legs and to fill pocketbooks and preach a health and wealth gospel. Man, everybody would turn out for that. You know, how am I going to be better, happier? How am I going to have a bigger boat, nicer car, nicer house? I, I deserve it. I deserve it. It's my right. It's a long way from the cross, isn't it? Because when you go to the cross, you don't have anything. You go to the cross alone. And it's very easy and very subtle, and I think a trick of the enemy, that we get this guru mentality about certain preachers and certain things, and we get almost this cultic obsession with stuff and with feelings and we don't get back to the truth because the truth doesn't sound exciting. But ladies and gentlemen, if we don't give people the truth, then the only reason they will, listen to me, the only reason they will come to this church or any church is like the crowd came so that we would feed them bread. Give them a free meal and they'll come. Give them a miracle and they'll come. And you look at the Gospels and when Jesus started turning the cost of discipleship up and when He started saying, this is what the Gospel is all about, you look over and over, Luke 14, other chapters, and many left and followed Him no more. Why? Because He wasn't offering them free bread anymore. Where's the fish? Where's the bread? Where are, the, where are all the miracles? Because... We get caught up in that. And I want to tell you, if all we do is reach people because we provide free bread, then when persecution comes on the church in America, they'll bail out like rats on a sinking ship because they haven't sold their hearts to the gospel. They've sold their hearts to something that looks like the gospel, but it's not. And there is a price to pay. Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then release them. By the way, they wouldn't even have to flog us. They'd just have to threaten. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Philippians 1.29 says, It is given to us not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His name's sake. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my name's sake. I tell you, the devil went for the church and the church decided it was time to storm the gates of hell. And they just went after it. And here's the sermon in verses 30 and 31. Look at where he begins. He begins with the God of our fathers. Now don't miss what he's doing here. Peter is calling Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets to bear witness with him. And this is what he's saying. He's saying to the Sanhedrin, if you guys would read your Bible, you'd know I was telling the truth. 
If you really did love Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if you really did honor the prophets, you would know that I'm telling the truth, that Jesus is who he said he is. And this is a, this is a formal New Testament study argument method called kerygma. Okay, this is where you organize your facts and you get them together and you present the basic gospel facts. So look at what he does. He presents the basic gospel facts. The cross, you put to death by hanging him on a cross. The resurrection, God raised up Jesus. The ascension, God exalted to his right hand. And the witness, we are witnesses of these things. Verse 32, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given is past tense. To those who, God, who obey Him, that's present tense. So God initiates salvation. God in the past has given us the Holy Spirit when we were saved. And we are witnesses to what God has said to us, and so is the Holy Spirit, to those who obey Him. So what he's saying is, is when we obey what God says, the Holy Spirit bears witness with us. That means two things. First of all, it means the Holy Spirit empowers our witness as we speak, but it also means that the Holy Spirit goes ahead of us before we even begin to witness. Folks, listen. Salvation begins and ends in God. It doesn't begin and end with you ringing a doorbell or getting out of track. Salvation begins and ends with God. And when you're walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and obeying the Holy Spirit and speaking the truth, the Holy Spirit is a witness to that. And the Holy Spirit goes before you, around you. In fact, when they reject it, He comes in behind you because He's not going to let them alone. The Holy Spirit initiates it all. In chapter 5 and verse 31, the objective witness of the Holy Spirit is that to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Jesus said in John 10, 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. There's my witness, and then there's the extraordinary witness of the Holy Spirit that I don't even see. There's my witness where I know what I'm saying and I know what I'm presenting, but then there's the witness of the Spirit that is doing a work in the heart of a person that I don't even begin to see unless the Spirit of God is quickened within them and they realize that they're a sinner and they're lost and they need salvation. We are witnesses of these things. Now I want to take a sharp turn and just close with a few thoughts. I want you to look at this phrase in Acts chapter 5. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. That's why our mission statement says it's the whole word for the whole world, motivated by a passion for Christ and compassion for all people. Our job is to fill our Jerusalem with this teaching. Our job is to fill the streets of this community with this teaching. Now we sit in a beautiful facility tonight 
And we try to use it at every available opportunity in every conceivable way to try to fill this community with this teaching. The reason we built it, the reason we invested millions of dollars is so that we could do that. The reason that you and I participate in paying for it is not because we've got a debt to pay off. That's the lowest motive anybody could possibly have. I mean, a pagan can have that for his house payment. That's not the reason you do it. The reason we do it is so that we can fill Jerusalem with this teaching. Because you see, the longer it takes us to pay this off, the less opportunities we have to do some other things that God will have for us to do. Some opportunities to buy something or invest in something or believe God for something that we'll need to do. So I want to give you four statements about why we're in this facility as it relates to Acts chapter 5. First of all, this building is a witness that we are committed to filling this city with this teaching. We are witnesses and so is the Holy Spirit. This building stands as a witness. I don't know if you've ever been up and down Whispering Pines during the day, but there are a lot of cars that go by this place. We decided to stay here intentionally because we're not only a community church, we're not only a regional church, we're also a neighborhood church. We're called to minister to the people in this neighborhood and then go out into the community and across some county lines and across more lines until we can reach and touch a region for Christ. So this building stands as a witness that we have a commitment to reach people with the gospel of Christ. Secondly, it stands to bear witness that the only hope is Jesus Christ. It stands to bear witness that the only hope is Jesus Christ. That's why there's a cross out there on the prayer tower. Don't let anybody doubt that we're embarrassed about that, that we're anything but possessed by and consumed by the preaching of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not embarrassed by it. We put it right up there on the front where everybody can see it. Because we want people to know what we stand for. You go and ask a lot of church members in a lot of churches, they don't know what they stand for. I know what we stand for. We stand for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we have stood for since day one. That's what we stand for today. And as long as God gives us breath, that's what we must stand for. Thirdly, it's a witness that we believe God has more in store for us. It's a witness that we believe God has more in store for us. You say, well, you know, most Sundays we've got empty seats in here. Yeah. They're for people that don't even know it yet, but we're after them. You know? I mean, we could have just kept adding more and more services in that other building and worn ourselves out and somebody drive up into the parking lot and by the way when a building's 80% full people who study these kind of things say it's full you know what we want to say hey we've got room for you and one day we'll fill every corner of this room and one day we'll fill more rooms across the street at the elementary school which God gave us. And guess what? God gave us, what, eight or nine rooms over there? We got nine, something like that. 
as many as we want. We got as many as we want to use over there. Guess what? God gave us that, and guess what happened? We don't have empty rooms over here now. We've got rooms filled over here now, and we filled rooms over there now. And so we need more room, more places, because we want to reach more people. If it was just about us, we could have stayed where we were, status quo, minding our business, and say, you know what, we're just fat and happy and comfortable and satisfied. You know, let Albany go to hell. We don't care. But we couldn't do that in honor of this word. And there's another reason. Because I believe that there's coming a day when there's going to be a great outpouring of the Spirit of God. And when there is, we're going to be ready. You cast a vision for the future, not for the present. I believe there's coming a day when if we trust God and we believe God that God is going to send an outpouring of His Spirit, I don't know when it's going to be. If it's not today, it may be tomorrow. But I know this, a church gets big because it cares about people. And a lot of churches stay small because they only care about their systems. That's not the reason all churches stay small. There's a reason a lot of churches stay small because they just care about, you know, I don't want to lose my position of power. I don't want to lose my position on the finance committee. Or on, you know, I don't want to lose my position. I don't want new people coming in and taking over where I've been in charge. Folks, listen. When the breath of the Spirit of God blows through a place, He upsets every man-made system. And what He leaves in place is a hunger for the Word of God and a passion for the souls of people. He gives us a new heart and a new desire and a new goal and a new motive. In the last 13 years, we've been able to see people join from 30 communities around Albany. We now have members not only in Albany and Leesburg, and we have them in Sylvester, we have them in 30 communities in this area who drive here because for some reason they found something here that God can do in their lives. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We are witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday, God is with us. But there are those moments when God is with us. And I pray for the day, and I long for the day, when we have become so lined up with what God wants us to do that the cloud of revival would come over this place and God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit would say in agreement, we're going to take up residence there for a while. We're just going to settle in.
We're just going to show them what a God-filled church is all about. That ought to be what we pray for. That ought to be what we long for. That not only that God would be with us, but that God would be with us. Listen, folks, God never mocks His children. And when His children want what He wants, then we have a right to expect that God will in His time and in His way show up with power and show up in revival and show up in a movement of the Spirit of God that we will look at each other and say, we can't explain it, but God is with us. And when that happens... The people who drive by Whispering Pines now just wondering if there is a crossing guard will start seeing a cross. And people will start pulling up in parking lots under conviction because they can't even go by here because the Spirit of God is so strong on this campus. That's what I'm praying for. And I will not be satisfied until God does it. And when God sends revival, and when God's Spirit fills us up to overflowing, the outcome of that is that we are witnesses, and so is the Holy Spirit. It wasn't their praying at Pentecost that brought the Holy Spirit down. The Holy Spirit was coming anyway. It was their praying that put them in a position so that they would be ready that when the Spirit came, they would know what to, know what to do about it. That's what the Spirit was for. So that when God came down, they would know exactly how they needed to respond. And you know what He did? He came down. And you know what they did? They went out. And they began to preached the gospel and the Spirit of God was so strong on their lives that they were overwhelmed by it. And the people who heard them were overwhelmed by it. And 3,000 people in 10 minutes said, what must we do to be saved? I think there are 3,000 people in Albany, Georgia right now that need to be saved. I think there are 30,000 people in Albany, Georgia that need to be saved. But folks, God is not going to send new babies to a church that doesn't know how to treat them and love them and care for them and know how to take care of them, change their diapers when they mess up. And I'm not talking about physical babies. I'm talking about spiritual babies. Because the outgrowth of revival is always in history, evangelism. When the church gets right, the lost get saved because they see something in us that they've never seen before. So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would rain down on us and that because of that, that His presence would be so thick in this place that you couldn't cut it with a knife. That He would decide to just put a cloud of blessing unlike He's ever done before. And He's blessed us. I mean, we know that. 
but that He would do something among us that we would fall on our faces in awe before a holy God and wonder that of all the things He could have done, He chose to come and dwell with us. And He will do that when we want it. But He will not waste His blessings on any church that can take it or leave it. And when He does it, our agenda will be over. We may have to clear our calendar. We may have to say, you know what? Everything we got is wrong. Let's just start doing what we're supposed to do. We just may have to have some all-night prayer meetings that nobody has to advertise or call. Just people just come. We may have people that get saved just standing on the parking lot just because they got here and they couldn't stand it anymore and they knew they needed God to do something in their life. Folks, I've seen that happen. I've watched it. I've seen it. And it is a rare thing. But it's the right thing. That the Holy Spirit would rain down on us. I want us to sing that song, Holy Spirit, Rain Down. I want you to stand to your feet if you would.